welcome to a new episode of AI Chats. This is a podcast series produced by the law firm of Haynes and Boone and lawyers from its AI and deep learning practice group. The intent is to explore the ever-evolving, exciting, and occasionally controversial world of artificial intelligence. My name is Eugene Gorinov, and I'm a partner in the Chicago office of the firm, and I'm joined by my colleague Dina Blickstein from our New York office. Our guest today is Bill Clayman, the Executive Vice President of Digital Solutions at Switch. And today, we're going to talk about AI's role in cognitive systems. But before we get started, our standard disclaimer. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to be legal advice and does not establish an attorney-client relationship. The topics we discuss are subject to change. Legal advice of any nature should be sought from your legal counsel. Bill, before we get started, can you introduce yourselves to our uh, listeners? Hey, thanks for having me here. It's a, it's a pleasure to be on this podcast with everybody. Um, I am Bill Clayman, as Eugene pointed out, EVP of Digital Solutions over at Switch. And I get a chance to work with uh, different kinds of systems where you know our, our environment gets a chance to support some of the world's largest and most advanced hyperscale data centers. We also work very closely with machines that can think, and as Eugene pointed out, only sometimes controversial. Thank you for joining us today, Bill. It's nice that we live in a time when machines can think. Is this what we call cognitive computing? So let's just let's just kick this right off, Dina. That, that's a great question to start off with. Um, outside of my work at Switch, I get a chance to write and publish and speak all over the world on the topics of machines and uh, that can learn, that can get, can think, and help us make better decisions. But let's start at the very, very high level. Terms like cognitive computing is really an umbrella term which encompasses a range of other technologies. So one of those components, for example, is natural language processing. Um, which basically allows you to create intelligent interactions between machines and humans. And to fill that gap between people and machines, for example, things like NLP, leverage code and computational linguistics, and even computer science to understand and manipulate human language. Now, specifically as it relates to cognitive computing, these are models that understand human behavior. So for example, a cognitive computing engine can be aware of the full context of every conversation so it can adapt its social tone, for example, and actions accordingly. These cognitive computing models select the appropriate um, you know, level and, and knowledge and actually reference multiple knowledge engines at every step of a potential conversation in order to keep dialogue fluid and help, in this case, customers reach their goals faster. In a way, it uses computerized models to basically simulate the human thought process in complex situations where the answers might be ambiguous or uncertain. Bill, this brings me to my next question. How do cognitive computing systems work? Oh, man, that, that's, that's such a fun question. So cognitive computing allows machines, computers, to mimic the way human brains work. So cognitive computing itself uses self-learning algorithms based on things like data mining and pattern recognition to look for uh, solutions and to generate solutions to, my goodness, a wide variety of problems. Um, but to achieve these feats, as presented by, uh, there's actually a consortium, the Cognitive Computing Consortium, cognitive computing systems must be adaptive, interactive, iterative, stateful, and contextual. Missing really any of these attributes prevents a system from truly achieving cognitive computing capabilities. It's really how should I put this, Dina? It's a mashup of cognitive sciences, the study of the human brain and how it functions, and, well, basically computer science. It's at the intersection of neuroscience, supercomputing nanotechnology, and big data. 
Okay, well, that sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Is there a difference between cognitive computing and uh, artificial intelligence? It's one of my most favorite questions, Eugene, that, that I often get, and it's, it's probably one of the more challenging ones to answer. If you take a look at a Venn diagram and you see that little part where it overlaps in the middle, that's kind of where AI fits in in all of these thinking systems. So AI allows software. Now, just make sure you follow me, everybody, on the terminology here. So AI allow software to learn and use acquired knowledge to make decisions and complete tasks. So for example, uh, AI can be assigned to a customer service role that can access inventory data to help a customer make informed decisions about products. Um, the AI software will process the request, use its intelligence to find information, and make a judgment about which information best applies to a resolution. In other scenarios, AI can learn when customers are most likely to answer emails uh, and recommend specific times for sales teams, for example, to reach out. Now, Everybody, follow me on these differences because this is going to really outline the true differentiation points between cognitive systems and AI. So AI will augment human thinking to solve complex problems. Um, It focuses on accurately reflecting reality and providing accurate results. On the other hand, cognitive computing will focus on mimicking human behavior and reasoning to solve complex problems. AI is not intended to mimic human thoughts and process, but to solve a problem through the best possible algorithm. Conversely, cognitive computing is not responsible for making the decision ultimately for humans. They simply supplement information for humans to make a decision. So again, AI is responsible for helping people make decisions uh, on their own, minimizing the role of a human, whereas cognitive computing tries to sort of replicate how people would solve a problem while AI seeks uh, to create new ways to solve the problem and potentially be better than humans, which is kind of a scary statement. Well, which one is more efficient uh, when you come to uh, problem-solving decision-making and uh, the end result? That's a great question. Uh, I I think they both serve a special kind of of function. So if you're talking about a conversational type of engine um, where you need it to give you an idea, to give you a direction, that's where cognitive computing might actually make a difference. Uh, Cognitive systems, again, are not designed to give you the one all end all uh, answer, whereas AI uses algorithms to specifically give you a direction to go into. So it's not about which one's necessarily better. But it's much more about more about use cases and where you want to apply a thinking engine. All right. Well, what scenario would an AI be uh, more appropriate than uh, cognitive computing? So uh, when we take a look at things like artificial intelligence, uh, you want that engine to be able to make a decision for you, which is really kind of an interesting misconception because people will think like and the Amazon device or like Siri or even like driverless cars are actually cognitive computing systems. They're not really. They're actually AI because let's kind of put a scenario. If I'm in a car that can drive itself, basically, I don't want it sort of maybe thinking about turning left or stopping at a red light. I want it to stop at a red light. So I'm going to use an AI engine that's going to, through algorithms, and again, there are really, really big overlapping points here. Because remember, AI includes, but is not limited to, things like machine learning, neural networks, um, uh, NLP, deep learning, all of these different actual concepts, which again, like I mentioned earlier, will overlap with cognitive computing. So you want something um, like, for example, in finance or security or healthcare or retail or manufacturing government, you want something that's an AI engine because you want it to help you make a decision. Whereas cognitive computing, customer service, uh, similarly, healthcare, the industrial sector, where you can get a direction 
that's where it can help you out. So as an example, a driverless vehicle is actually more of an AI architecture than a cognitive system. Why is it better to implement a driverless car as an AI rather than a cognitive system? Because you really want a process to be automated rather than augmenting a human capability. When you're working in a driverless car, again, you really want to be able to work with finding patterns in all of the data that you gather to learn and either reveal like pieces of information or deliver solutions to a complex problem. Like for example, all the variables you've got um, that are flying around when a vehicle is driving. Now, on the other hand, Cognitive computing will simulate human thought processes to assist humans in finding solutions to complex problems. Again, there's a difference where you're doing research to find maybe a viral load, or you're trying to do research in oncology, for example. You're trying to find a symptom, right? And you're entering all this data. And so that is a lot of complex problems. And what you're doing is using cognitive systems to help you simulate how you think to find that. Similarly, if you're driving in a vehicle, you're getting a whole lot of variables thrown at you. There's a dog in the road. There's a stoplight. There's a stop sign. There's a you know a pedestrian. There's a bicycle, for example. All of those are variables that are going to make yes or no decisions, actual decisions to automate the process of driving a vehicle. So less of the augmentation of human capabilities and more of the function takeover. You mentioned earlier that driverless vehicles are actually AI systems. Can you give us a few examples of uh, cognitive systems as well? It's a fun question. Um, there's going to be some that are going to be very, very well known. For example, uh, there's IPsoft Amelia that does some really, really interesting things with uh, customer service and human interaction. Um, that kind of system in itself will have tens of thousands of conversations per month where it'll handle things like level one support, level one ticketing. Uh, to the extent that, drum roll please, people don't even know that they're talking to a cognitive computing engine. Uh, another really kind of famous one is going to be IBM Watson, which is really, really cool. Think of it as an underlying cognitive computing platform on top of which you can build. And I'm sure we're going to talk about use cases here a little bit, but off the top of my head, those are two pretty popular and well-known systems. There are other ones out there as well uh, that have, uh, I would say, specific use cases in the industry. Uh, and maybe some potential examples uh, would be for like the uh, for the healthcare field, for potentially uh, veterinary services, manufacturing, finance, and, and so on. But a lot of these systems are built on top of, for example, IBM Watson. Bill, from what I know, Watson is an IBM product where a person plays with chess. How is this cognitive as opposed to being an an AI system? So an IBM Watson environment, specifically, you know, it, it is an AI architecture, but really Watson helps organizations predict outcomes and automate complex processes and optimize people's time. Um, there are bits of it uh, as an AI. So here, here's, let me kind of clear it off. Here. So Watson is an IBM supercomputer, really, that combines AI and sophisticated analytical software for optimal performance um, as a question answering machine, right? So mimicking human capabilities to answer questions and really provide direction, again, as opposed to sort of a, of a yes or no direct outcome kind of a machine. Again, trying to uh, mimic uh, where you know where people think and what they can do uh, in terms of specific issue or challenge. So what Watson does essentially is uses uh, former human input to come up with answers to whatever question a person can pose. 
Yes. Uh, sometimes even it's able to do things like natural language processing and even natural language generation, uh, where it's capable of understanding much more deeply uh, what a human is trying to do. It, it gets really, really complicated, right? You can even work with things like memory, episodic, semantic processing, even effective memory. So just to give you an example, a cognitive computing machine can use something known as semantic memory, where it can store facts, concepts, and even associations between uh, between those different elements in this machine's semantic memory. So from a standard operating procedure perspective, SOP to policy documents, these systems can be trained and apply them to conversations. So when a machine is talking to a human being or another person, right, the concepts and ideas in the human brain are semantically linked. uh, So that thinking about or, you know, firing one set of neurons in your head primes other related ones, making them more likely to fire in the future. Really, really cool concept here. Again, where we're using data to make decisions with AI, cognitive systems use a much more complex order of operations and a complex set of knowledge to apply the decision-making process. And again, beyond decisions, be able to have a conversation, um, you know, in multiple languages, learn business logic, and again, have contextual deep levels of understanding. And today, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, Bill, but we're at a point where Watson can essentially emulate a human. So if I'm talking to Watson, I may not know that I'm talking to a computer. You ready for this, Dina? More people than you can imagine every single day if you go into like your bank account or you chat with a bot or you even give somebody a call, more people have interacted with a bot, a thinking conversational bot than they even realize. And even to the extent that almost every single person listening to this, if it's from an iPhone device, from a digital thing, if you've got a, a smart home uh, device in your home or whatever the case is, you've most likely in some way today have interacted with an engine that can think, whether it's cognitive computing or AI. So remarkably, back when when these kinds of solutions actually started, they were a little bit clunky. Why? Because you know things like cognitive computing systems, and in this case, maybe IBM Watson or IPsoft Amelia, just didn't have the kind of data to make it more actionable. Well, today, that's fundamentally different. And to your point, Dina, you are absolutely right. We are having conversations uh, with thinking engines all the time, right? Where they're automated learning, where they're doing conversational intelligence, advanced analytics, and smart workflow to integrate with really large ERP systems to, again, ingest data and then use things like neural ontology, process ontology, episodic memory to create, my goodness, I can't believe I'm saying, a brain, effectively a machine that can then respond to people exceedingly naturally. This is fascinating and at the same time very scary because I <laughs> no, because I can't really picture myself conversing with a computer today that but I'm sure I've done it in the past whether it was through Expedia or logging into a bank account and I think the more sophisticated those systems becomes the more natural they become and it's really you can you can determine whether you're talking to a person or to a computer. Well, there's there's a really interesting use case there. There's a giant telecommunications provider. We'll, we'll, we'll keep them anonymous, and they employ 107,000 employees worldwide. Uh, and using, uh, well, in this case, it's actually uh, IPsoft Amelia, where it's basically become the face of their IT desk. I mean, hang, hang on a second. 
They handle 83% of all IT requests and uh, have held uh, more than 100,000 conversations where she assists first-line supporters request password resets, distributionless additions, permission changes, email issues, and even two-factor authentication. So to, to your point, I mean, literally, this thing is having hundreds of thousands of conversations to a point where, whether it's English, Spanish-speaking, a different language potentially, where you can explore how you can uh, potentially use these kinds of systems to do some really great things. And again, here's the kind of the kicker. These are human-centric, people-focused technologies, not necessarily here to replace people, but to augment their skill sets. And the combination of cognitive systems and people really make those systems really, really powerful and interesting. Hundred percent agreed. That's kind of the only way you can make it. Uh, you can make it work is when you effectively ingest all of that data and create, you know, a brain where again you can use episodic memory, process memory, intent recognition, emotional intelligence to again respond to exceedingly complex queries and process transactions and deliver personalized experiences to people. I mean, it's it's pretty special. That's really fascinating. So where are these cognitive systems being used today? So use cases are really, really fun. And this is one of my, my favorite topics to talk about. Remember what I said earlier, where things like, uh, you know, these brains and these thinking engines are usually built on top of platforms. So in this case, Watson. Um, I can tell you that Watson for Oncology, for example, has helped physicians quickly identify key disease information in a patient's medical records, analyze relevant evidence for and against different treatments, uh, and explore treatment options. Um, the world's first Ready for this? Cognitive cooking application, again, created by IBM Watson, uh, offers uh, original recipe for every meal while considering dietary restrictions, personal preferences, and even the kind of food you have in your refrigerator. Uh, an app like this could save a lot of time and energy for people suffering from things like diabetes uh, and others. Uh, there's another interesting one, Project Debater. Uh, is also developed by IBM. It's the first ever AI system that can debate and look at complex human topics nonstop. It's it's a fascinating concept. Um, one more interesting one, I'll give you a use case. Uh, there's one called Life Learn, and it's specifically for the veterinary care industry. And this is cool, right? Because I've got, I've got puppies in the house. Uh, helping veterinarians diagnose and treat illness in their patients. Um, and again, what's really fascinating here is this cognitive technology isn't just helping humans, it's helping veterinarians take better care of pets um, that are brought into their practice. Now, there's other really interesting applications as well, uh, like cybersecurity. Um, but yeah, we, we, we might talk about that here in a second. Those are very interesting uses for cognitive computing. Bill, you mentioned cybersecurity before. Can you briefly touch on how cognitive computing is being used in cybersecurity? Yes. Um, so the entire cybersecurity landscape is extraordinary. And what we've learned in 2020, and we learned a lot of things in 2020, it was really a perfect storm for people to accidentally, or sometimes not, leak information. In fact, 85% was an increase through 2020 in terms of them leaking information. So cybersecurity, especially when it comes to AI, organizations are able to more effectively monitor and respond to security inc incidents by using these advanced tools. Uh, you see some of these new next generation firewalls that have built-in machine learning technologies that can find a pattern, for example, in network packets and block them automatically if flagged as a threat. And then predictably, things like natural language capabilities of AI will be used to understand the origination of cyber attacks where you can, in theory, put uh, into practice by scanning data across the internet. Now, 
before we get too excited about you know AI and engines that can think for us and, and do security, um, there's some things that, are, that you need to be aware of, some some real world gotchas out there uh, where I really don't feel like it's going to replace human element uh, in security quite yet. Because here's the thing, there's something that makes algorithms a little bit dangerous in that algorithms make assumptions around data. Um, so they'll assume that it's clean, for example, um, or it'll often assume that a certain type of data and its distribution, uh, you know, it'll assume a certain type of data distribution, excuse me. Generally, they don't really deal with outliers. Um, machine learning assumes that you have enough representative data to make a decision. Uh, sometimes you need contextual features and all it, it also has some challenges with normal normalizing it. It might assume that all input that you're putting into it is normalized the same way. So a bad actor or a malicious actor could potentially find ways to insert, quote, clean data into an environment. And then your AI engine is going to be like, all right, well, this is cool. I should just let this in um, and then continue to work and process with it. So again, it's a great tool where you can sense anomalous behavior, strange packets, um, you know, being being traversed through the through the network, but the way that AI engines look at data is different, right? Because they exhibit different behaviors. Just as a technical example, you've got different layers in the OSI protocol stack. And for example, the layer four protocol exhibits different behavior than the other layers. So you have to train an AI security engine differently and separately on each one of those layers. That's a very, very technical statement. It's just basically saying that you can't as a blanket say, hey, I've got AI cybersecurity, I'm all set. Um, you do have some things where you need to train, you need to work with that, and you need to define some of the parts of your environment a little bit more effectively for the AI to be effective itself. So definitely along the ways that we're going to see it more out there and certainly in supporting users, but you know, still some things to be aware of. So that's a very interesting point on cybersecurity today, Bill. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. It was my absolute pleasure. Don't be shy. Be sure to connect. You can find me out there on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook, and anywhere else. And by all means, check out some of the published works that I've done that do cover these technologies, cybersecurity, AI, data centers, and much more. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you, Bill. And thank you to our guests and listeners for joining us today on this episode of AI Chats. You can find today's episode and future ones on the major podcast platforms such as Apple, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Amazon. Our podcasts on relevant articles about artificial intelligence topics are also located at the firm's AI and deep learning practice page, which can be found at HeinzBoon.com. Our practice page also contains contact information for all the lawyers in the practice group. Please feel free to reach out to any of us if you'd like to suggest topics for future AI chat episodes. Take care all. <laughs>